Now, if you have your Bibles, you do need them this morning, because I didn't, I, it's not on the screen, so we will not, we'll be uh, in the book of Acts, so you can just go ahead and get to the beginning of Acts, but before we get there, uh, I, I want to just share a little bit about a prayer that Jesus has prayed for his people. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for the people of God. He specifically prays for believers. And an important part of that prayer is he prays for unity amongst the body. And so he prays that we would be one as a church as he and the Father are one. Now, the fact that he ties that to being a unity that he has with the Father is really important for us because the unity that Jesus the Son has with God the Father is unadulterated. It's unity that is inseparable in its operation. Singular purpose. Ray Ortland, in speaking about this passage, says this. He says, and this is the long quote, so here we go. Ultimate reality in the eternal Godhead is loving community. The Father at one with the Son. The Son at one with the Father. The world knows nothing of such intense, personal, unbroken unity. The world is divisive, angry, tense, and trigger-happy. The world does not believe that real unity can even exist. They have never seen it. All they have ever known is dog eat dog. But Jesus prayed for us, his church, that we would be a new kind of community here in this world. He prayed that our churches would be living proof of ultimate reality before the world today so that more people might look beyond this world as they see in our churches. Yes, our churches, some reflection of the unity of the Father with the Son and then believe the gospel. Did you catch that? What we see from John 17 and what, what Ray Ortland begins to unpack for us is that Christian unity is actually a reflection of the eternal Godhead. Today, I don't know if you know this, in the church calendar is actually Trinity Sunday. So most churches right now are celebrating the glorious beauties that are found in Christ the, the Son in Jesus the Father, in God the Father, and in the Holy Spirit, which are three in one. Ultimately, they are always existing eternally in loving unity as one essence and three distinct persons. And maybe that sounds confusing, and it is a bit confusing. It's a very mysterious thing, and I'm not going to do it uh, injustice by trying to fit it into a neat analogy that inevitably falls short. But one day I will preach on the Trinity. But one thing we have to recognize is that the God that we worship is a Trinity. He is three in one, and He has been since eternity past operating in loving unity with Himself. And we have to recognize that because that's the God that we as a church are called to reflect. There's something about the unity of the church that promotes a compelling and beautiful vision of the glory of God and the unity of the Godhead in a world that is divided. In a world that doesn't believe true unity can exist, our responsibility is to carry forward a unity that is compelling and is beautiful. So Jesus in his prayer says that he prays that our unity would be modeled after the Trinity. But then he goes on to saying, praying that our unity would lead the world to know that God loves us. 
You see, there's something about a unity that can be found only in the church that comes and stems from our understanding of God's love for us. We have been loved by God. Our greatest needs have been fulfilled because of that. We're no longer looking for belonging or purpose or a sense of identity or of home anywhere else because we know where we belong. We belong in God's loving arms. We have been loved by God, and now because we have been loved by God, we can relate to others rightly, not asking them to be something for us that only God can be. Now, this should drive us to unity because we don't need people to agree with us on everything in order to have a sense of self-worth. The God of the universe loves you, and that should lead you to uh, just overwhelming, contagious joy. And maybe contagious is the wrong word there in this time. But this also leads us to the ability to love others rightly. Why? Because if God has loved them, who are we to say that they're not deserving of that same love? Sadly, in our day and age, the church is not always a compelling and beautiful vision of God and His glorious love, but instead we often reflect the world more than we reflect God. And there is a problem with this because it would seem that according to Jesus' prayer in John 17 that a divided church can actually hinder God, people coming to know God. Like Jesus prays, hey, Lord, would, would they see your unity and from see, or would they be unified and from seeing them unified would people come to believe that you are really God? So the, the offset of that is if that we are not unified, we could actually like hinder people from seeing the beauty of the gospel. See, unity is a, it, it provides a compelling vision and, and it leads to people believing that this is really true. But division leads to people saying, how could this supposed good news that they preach, this gospel, mean anything? Do you see how vicious they are to each other? How could this be true? If Jesus felt the need to pray for the unity of the church, then it should be very clear to us that this is something we're going to have to fight for. We are going to have to fight for unity, but what I'm not talking about today is false unity. I'm not saying we just all just, you know, Lay down and just never have a hard conversation. That's not what I'm referencing, and I think that's not actual true unity. We're not looking at unity that leads to conformity. It doesn't mean that all of us are going to agree on all things at all times, but it means that our chief goal, our end game, if you will, is to promote the glory of God in our world, to be witnesses of Him. And if that's our end game, if that's our goal, then unity is going to be centered around that. But that doesn't happen by false peace. It's not just agreeing just to agree, but really being frustrated inside and like just really mad at that person. That's not true unity. It, it doesn't happen by division over non-essential issues. That's also not unity. It happens by saying, hey, we're not going to divide where Christ has not divided. We're going to fight for unity because when we are unified, it leads to people believing God. Amen. It leads to our witness being credible, and it leads to life. 
So we're going to fight for unity that is, that is revealed, that is rooted, and that is grounded in the gospel. Grounded in the good news of Christ. Grounded in the word of God. Unity that will promote a compelling vision of God to a dying world. And to a divided world. So what I, what I want to do today is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover the first few chapters of Acts. We're going to be moving pretty quick this morning. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. I'm going to cover the first few chapters of Acts, looking at the early church, and I'm just going to draw out a couple of things that I believe are main ideas the author of Acts is attempting to help us see in the early church. And then I'm going to invite us into greater and deeper levels of unity. I'm going to invite us to lay down some areas where, where maybe we have divided, where Christ has not divided. And then I'm, I'm going to invite us to see the beauty of God that is found in a united church. And I, I think this matters today because I, I really believe that we're coming out of what has what been one of the most divisive years that at least I've seen. And I know I'm young, but I'm hearing a lot of people that are older than me saying the same thing. And, and I think that all of us would say that we have over the last year to two years probably lost some friends that we were once close with, but because we landed somewhere differently on an issue, that friendship has been lost. I think most of us have experienced that. And so if we're coming from that, this world that is dividing us, I think it's really important for us to know how we have to be united moving forward so that we can present a credible witness of who God is. So I want to invite us today into a countercultural community that does not ebb and flow with the division of the world but instead roots itself in the historic Christ who is a sure and steady foundation, though all other foundations will give way. So today's going to look a little bit different, and I think what you can expect from most Sundays here, at least as long as the Lord gives me to be the pastor of this church, is we're going to be focused on exposition of Scripture. We're going to take a passage of Scripture and unpack the major ideas and the major themes of that as often as we possibly can. Sometimes that's going to look like we're going through books of the Bible, but other times it's going to look like we're going through series, drawing out themes we see through Scripture. This is what we did in Christ Meets Me Everywhere. It's what we're going to do through the rest of the summer when I hit on gospel culture here. And this is what we want the meat of our preaching to be, is, is based and rooted in the Word of God. Exposition on Scripture. My words are just not going to get this church very far. I'm not that smart, but the Word of God, when we are rooted and grounded in that, is going to point us and move us forward. So today, what we're going to do is we are going to exposit Scripture, but we're going to be pulling out a main idea over a larger chunk of Scripture. So it's going to be moving a little bit quicker than we normally would. I, I hope to get back to Acts next year. I'm praying through preaching through it, but haven't heard from the Lord yet. But right now, we're going to be moving quicker than you would probably feel comfortable with. You might have some questions, and that's okay. Go study Acts on your own. We're going to try and hit a main idea in the first few chapters and draw that out. So this morning, if you have your Bible, would you open to Acts chapter 1, verse 14? I'll try and... Uh, 
moved slowly for us. Acts chapter 1, verse 14 says, They were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possession was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. This is the word of the Lord. God, we just ask this morning that you would sanctify your church in your truth. Lord, just as you have sent Christ into the world, you have also sent us into the world so, Lord, help us as we seek to portray Christ. Help us as we seek to portray the beauty and glory of who you are in the midst of a divided world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. One of the things we always want to make sure we do here is when we read a passage of Scripture, we don't rip it from its context. And so I'm going to give some background as we continue to go and, and overview some of these verses that I just drew out. In the beginning of Acts, we see uh, Jesus ascending to heaven. So he has risen from the dead. It's true. He is actually alive. He has de defeated sin and death. And then he is going to be ascending into heaven. But before he ascends into heaven, he sets before the disciples their mission. Their mission is to be witnesses on earth. And so before he does ascend, he says, all right, now go ahead and uh, go wait in Jerusalem. And when the Spirit comes, you'll be given power for this work of witnessing that I'm calling you to. And so then Jesus ascends and we see the church go, the disciples at that time, they obey, they go back to the upper room in Jerusalem and they wait for this power. But I think something we need to draw out from this real quick is that the work of the church in the world is to be a witness of Christ in the world. That is the work of the church, to witness Christ, to witness God. And this is what we see throughout the book of Acts. It's the church witnessing who Christ is. 
So Jesus tells them to go wait, and they go wait, and then they wait. And Acts tells us in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, that they go wait for the Spirit, and it says that they're united in prayer. But I want to draw something out from this specific section of Scripture. In Acts chapter 1, verse 13, we're going to see names of people who are waiting. And two of those names should stand out to us. One of them is a man by the name of Simon the Zealot. And the other is a man by the name of Matthew. Now here's why this is important. We know from context that Matthew is actually a tax collector. Now, he wasn't just a tax collector on behalf of the Jewish people. He was a Jew who would extort and collect taxes from his people in order to give to the Roman Empire. So that's what Matthew's job was before coming to Christ. Well, Simon, you'll notice the tagline in verse 13 is the zealot. Now, zealots were people who pretty much characteristically hated the Roman Empire. So they hated the Roman Empire, but even more so, they hated anyone who was a Jew who associated with the Roman Empire. So Simon the zealot would have had just an incredible hate for Matthew the tax collector. I mean, I mean they would have been divided in every way, shape, and form. Here's Matthew who helps the Romans extort the Jewish people, and here is Simon who hates the Romans and hates that they extort the Jewish people. And God calls them to be his disciples in Jesus. And then we see them here in Acts chapter 1. They are united in prayer. And I think we have to ask ourselves, how is it that these two men could find themselves unified in anything, let alone unified in prayer? And I mean, I think we'd be tempted to think that, you know, Matthew's calling down fire upon Simon, and Simon's calling down fire upon Matthew. But that's not what it says. It says they're unified in prayer together. And they're united because they believe Jesus. Their common ground of being children of God because they have believed in Jesus now changes everything about the way they relate to one another. You see, the gospel is the foundation for belief, but it's also going to be the foundation of their witness, and it's also going to be the foundation for Christian unity. So they're together, they're united in prayer, they're not basing it on perfect uniformity of beliefs, but they're centered and rooted in Christ. The unity that exists is now bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to notice in the first few chapters of Acts, in the earliest history of the church that we have, is marked by unity. Not division, but unity. Now, we don't want to be too idealistic. We know the further on we get into the book of Acts that it all kind of falls apart. There is some severe splits and lack of unity that happens in the book of Acts. But the early church, what the author of the book of Acts wants us to pull away from this is that right off the bat, they were unified. And that led to some important things happening in their city and in the world. You see... One of the things that every single one of these individuals would have known and what the author of Acts wants to draw out for us is that we would see the fact that the church's witness was not just in the words that they speak, but also in the way that they live among one another. Their doctrine led to a shift in their culture. Their belief that Jesus was Lord changed the way that they communed with one another. It changed the way that they related to one another. And that matters for us. 
So in Acts chapter 2, we get to this next section of Scripture that we read. We're going to see that this is right before the individuals in this room receive the Holy Spirit. It says they are all together in one place. And then the Spirit descends upon them and people start speaking in various tongues. A crowd of uh, people in the city come and they say, what just happened in this room? So they come to gather and there's various different ethnicities that show up and it's just people from all over the place. And we think, okay, all right, here we go. This is the moment where disunity happens because people are going to start coming and they're going to start asking questions. It's all going to fall apart. We're going to see it was all fake and, and it wasn't real. But what happens? These people show up from different backgrounds and different ethnicities and they hear the testimony of Christ in their mother tongue, in their home language. And careful Bible readers would notice that this is actually a reversal of what happens in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel happens and God scatters the nations based on a change of their language. And now we see that God is gathering the nations to himself based on a common language. By bringing understanding in various tongues. And so these people show up and we think, okay, here it goes. Now's the division. But initially, we would seem that that's right. There's some questions that are being asked, but then Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon. He gets up and he preaches a gospel-centered sermon about the crucified, resurrected, and ascended King Jesus, whom he is a Lord, or he, whom he is a witness of. And people are pierced to the heart, and we see that 3,000 individuals get saved and baptized in that day. But I think what we need to draw out from this is it was not just the verbal witness. While that was really important, the author seems to make sure that we know that the, the active witness of these people, what they were doing and the way that they lived amongst each other was also a part of the witness of the church. And it mattered. The verbal and cultural witness of the church led to a revival breaking out. And I think we'd be tempted to think, all right, well, you just add 3,000 persons to anything, unity's gone, right? 3,000 different individuals, that's it. It's lost. But that's not what we see in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, what do we see? But we see unity. We see that they are filled with awe and many wonders, and all the believers, including those 3,000 that just got saved, were together and held all things together in common. And what we're going to see here is that God actually creates a new community based upon the gospel. And, and what we should all be noticing is that this is kind of a creation narrative. This is very good. We haven't seen something that looked this perfect since Genesis chapter 1. This should, this should cause us to think that God is creating something that here is different. I mean, we see all throughout the Scripture division and disunity and questioning and people abandoning Christ even. And then here in this place, we see all these people committed and together in newness of life. The community now begins to operate as a witness because what do we see in chapter 2, verse 47? That every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The way that this community operated was so convincing to the world that they said, I want to be a part of that. And the Lord added to their number daily. 
God continues to add people to their number. He continues to save people. And they're now invited into this new community. What we are literally seeing in these passages of Scripture is God answering Jesus' prayer that through the witness of the unity of the church, people would come to know Him. And then we keep on in the text and it reveals to us in chapter 3 that persecution comes. Peter and John are out preaching in the temple and they uh, heal a man. It causes an uproar and they are now taken and put in prison because there are people who just don't want what they're preaching to be true. And so they are put in prison. They are persecuted. And we think that, okay, maybe this is disunity. This is where it comes. Disunity is going to happen now. Now that things are uncomfortable, it's all going to fall apart. But that's not what we see. I'd actually like to argue that when things are comfortable, that's when disunity starts to happen. Things are uncomfortable, and they dig deeper into their unity. So Peter and John have healed a guy, and then they preach a sermon witnessing Christ. The text tells us that 2,000 more people get saved, but Peter and John get put in prison. They're questioned. They continue witnessing Christ. When they get out of custody, they go back to the body of believers, and they start to pray for boldness together. So we see unity and prayer again show up and they start to pray for boldness. And what happens? The Holy Spirit fills them and they continue to witness boldly. But what's amazing is it says the word of God, but then immediately after it points to their verbal witness, we see again this passage of scripture unpacking the way that they lived their lives. In chapter 4, verses 32, it starts by saying, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. You see, the church became a contagious community that reflected the beauty of Christ and the unity of the Godhead. And that was a powerful witness in the world. Now, I know that some people will take passages like this and they'll prescribe it. They'll say like, all right, well, this is why we all need to sell all of our stuff and just put it in. That's not what I think. I think this is prescriptive. I don't think this is prescriptive. I think it's descriptive. I think it's describing a new thing that's happening. But I do think something that we should take out of this text is that the church is to be marked by unity. And when it is marked by unity, it's a compelling and beautiful witness to the world. It's a community that looks attractive that we should all want and desire to be a part of. And so I think as we go through these few, first few chapters, I think we have to say, like, man, what, what is it that hinders unity in our world? Like, we live in such a divided world. What is it that hinders our unity here in our body and in the church globally? What hinders that? Uh, I gave my first suggestion earlier. I think that part of it is because we are too comfortable. It's too easy to give up on your friendships within the church. It's too easy to just move on to another building that has the things you actually want in a church, preferentially. But I think we also live in a world that is, whether we realize it or not, discipling us all week long. We live in a world that is telling you to be divided that is encouraging division, is encouraging you to give up quickly on your relationships, is encouraging you to cancel those you don't agree with on everything. That was an amen. I heard it. <laughs> and one of the spaces that we see this happening the most, I think, in our world is in the political sphere. 
Like, there is just absolutely no human system that is going to neatly and perfectly reflect the nuances of the Christian position. We have to recognize that as a church. And I think we need to involve ourselves in the political sphere, but I think we need to have a little more charity than we do. There's not going to be one solid position that will perfectly reflect the church. She knows. She gets it. And I think we need to ensure that we are very careful before we make politics a dividing issue in the church because the world would tell us you need to be one or the other. And I think we have a witness as the church to say, hold on a second. Which, how? Second thing that I think is a dividing issue that's encouraged in our world and we see often is the church is gossip. You see, instead of going to a brother or a sister about something, we're so good at sharing behind their back maybe the prayer request we have for them. And, and the problem with this is it's not just gossip. It's now gossip that's hidden in a spiritual like, statement. Like, I, just, I want you to pray for my brother. He's just got this thing going. And what we're actually doing is we're just spreading maybe even misinformation or lies about an individual without even actually going and talking to them and helping us to discern where they're really at or what's really going on or what was really said. Instead of spreading information to build someone up, we often spread information, even if it's true information, that is bent towards diminishing individuals. It makes us feel righteous to pronounce someone else guilty, but it isn't in any way, shape, or form righteous to do so. And our culture loves gossip. Like, literally, it's... Like, do you realize how much of our media is just gossip? And you read it all day long, and so do I. And so our tendency is to think that that's the way we're supposed to operate. But we're not. We're supposed to be a countercultural community to the way that the world works. Amen. We're supposed to notice these things and say, hey, this is shaping me and this is forming me in a way that I don't think is fruitful, I don't think is beneficial, I don't think is charitable, and I don't think is biblically faithful. Amen. Our culture loves gossip, but gospel culture calls us to fight and to root out gossip because it's a devastating sin. And it's devastating to Christian unity. It's, there is an element of Christian unity that requires us to trust one another. And we cannot lean into the trust that we are called to have for one another if we're constantly thinking, I wonder what they're saying about me when I'm not here. I wonder what they're thinking about me when I'm not in the room. See, uh, I'm going to quote again from Ray Ortland, and this is a, a long quote, but I think it's worth it. He says this, he says, Gossip leaves a wide trail of devastation wherever and however it goes. Whether it's word of mouth, email, blogging, YouTube, it erodes trust and destroys morale. It creates a social environment of suspicion where everyone must wonder what is being said behind their backs and whether appearances of friendship are sincere. 
It ruins hard-won reputations with cowardly but effective weapons of misrepresentation. It manipulates people into taking sides when no such action is necessary or beneficial. It unleashes the dark powers of psychological transference, doing violence to the gossiper, to the one receiving the gossip and to the person being spoken against. It makes the body of Christ look like the body of the Antichrist, destroyers rather than healers. It exhausts the energies we would otherwise devote to positive witness. It robs our Lord of the church he deserves, and it exposes the hostility in our hearts and discredits the gospel in the eyes of the world. And then we wonder why we don't see more conversions, why the ground is so hard. Gossip is a damaging thing to the body of Christ. And it's exactly what the world wants us to do. It's exactly what Satan would love for the church to be, is a, is a gospel hub. Or a, a, not a gospel hub. He doesn't want us to be a gospel hub. He wants us to be a gossip hub. And the answer to that, the response to that, is the gospel. Another thing I think we see that divides the church sometimes unknowingly is cultural division. Now, I, we want to do as a church what we can to reflect our city. We're not just out to build a multi-ethnic church to say that we did it. Like, we want to reflect our city. We want our church to be a reflection of the people we are attempting to reach. But we're not just doing that to make ourselves feel good. We are desiring to reflect the ethnic and cultural diversities present in our city because we believe that the gospel is powerful enough to break down barriers. Like, we, we just believe that the church in a city that is multi-ethnic should look somewhat more multi-ethnic. And that's something we desire for our church, not so that we can be that, but so that we can say, hey, we're living and leaning into the gospel. Because when we don't do that, what often happens is you start to see the divisions and the barriers created. And that's really, that's really something we need to push against in a city such as this. I mean, if we were to look at the church in Acts, in Acts chapter 13, we see the church of Antioch. And the leadership that is existing in the church in Antioch is all over the map. And I'm not just talking about cultural backgrounds, but literal just like statuses in society. You've got Paul, who's a Pharisee, to Pharisees, who gets radically converted. He's part of the leadership. You've got Barnabas, who all we know about him is he's a son of encouragement and he sold a piece of land. And then we've got this other guy named Simon and then another individual by the name of Manaean who was in the house of Herod the king. So like he grew up with royalty. So this dude's rich and he's wealthy and he's also part of the leadership of this church. The church looked different because it reflected the fact that the city was different, but it created a new community. And in the church of Antioch, that's the first place that we see people called Christians because everyone within the community, within the city, could not neatly put them into their little boxes. They're like, man, this is something new. They look different. Their words are witnessing this Christ guy, and we can't seem to figure out where they fit, so they're their own thing, a new community. And that's what I think that, that the church today has to fight for, is a community that is not rooted in anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ and witnessing Christ and saying, how do we do that well? How do we become effective witnesses? Not just in our words, but in the way that we relate to one another. 
So I think we have to ask as a church, what are the barriers to gospel movement that we see culturally and societally in our city and in our church that God wants to break down? I think we need to be asking ourselves that. Like, how do we attain this unity, this unity that is so beautiful and centered around the gospel? How do we make that happen within our church? How do we get there? Well, I've mentioned my first. I think it's we have to be centered around Christ and around his work. But I think the second thing I would say is we have to pursue community within this body. And I mean like real community. Like not just I saw you on Sunday morning. Like a, hey, I'm going to go deep with you because I know that there's going to be some things we disagree on, but we're going we're to push past that. Because we believe that, that the relationship we are trying to build is not just a present one, but an eternal one. And so we're going to let some outer things that maybe don't matter as much slide a little bit. We're not going to necessarily say, and I'm not talking sin issues. I want you to know that. Like we, we root out sin from our body as much as we can. That's what we're going to talk about next week, how sin can be divisive to unity. But what I think that we really need to focus on is, man, where are the areas where I've put up barriers and I've put up walls from relationships with one another that the gospel would call me to drop or real community would call me to drop? I don't think it's an accident that the church is described as a family within the New Testament. I don't think it's an accident that Paul uses language like brothers and sisters and spiritual fathers and mothers. Like, I think that's intentional because you do not drop your family over non-essential issues. Instead, you, you lean in. So I think we, we pursue community that is real and rooted in who Christ is. It's united in prayer. That's really important. That's something we see throughout the beginning of Acts. They're united in prayer together. They're pursuing the mission of witnessing Christ to all the world together. Like, it's, it's not just a, well, I did church on Sunday. I knocked that off my religious box, and now I can go home, or I can go eat, I can go eat lunch with my real friends. And, like, that's not what this is. It's not something we mark off a box. It's not just something we do on Sunday mornings. To, to fill out our religious card. This is life together. Amen. This is the people in this world that you have the most in common with. Like, if you are a Christian and the person sitting next to you is a Christian or the person sitting in front of you is a Christian, then the most important thing about you is also the most important thing about them. And the most true thing about you is also the most true thing about them. How could you find deeper relationship anywhere else? I think we have to focus on that. We have to, to dig deep and, and dive in and pursue real community that's not just a showed up on Sunday. And I'm going to unpack this next idea later on in the summer, but I think another thing we have to recognize is we have lost a theology and an idea of exile. And here's what I mean by this. We don't recognize the body of Christ and the value of the body of Christ because we think we're home. We think we're home already. But in reality, we are strangers in a strange land. 
In the words of Peter in the book of 1 Peter, we are elect exiles. We have been chosen by God, but we are now existing in a place that is not our forever home. We are called to steward it. We're called to seek the good of it. We're called to love our neighbors, but we're also called to recognize that this is not it forever. And so I cannot, I cannot treat the body of Christ as if it is expendable, but my nation and my friendships outside of it aren't. Like, this is eternal. And that, if we start to get that, that we're not home here, that we really are only home and getting a glimpse of home in the body of Christ, that is the moment that we're going to start to be able to pursue unity a little bit more. And the third thing I think we need to, to do is I think we need to be more kingdom-minded. Like, I want to cast a vision for us as a church that seeks to unify around the gospel that seeks to see transformation in our city and seeks to identify and develop partnerships with other churches because we're not supposed to be torn apart based on competition. Like, can I just tell you guys a story real quick? I, I don't know how many of you guys know Cross of Grace in this city and Ricky Alcantar is the pastor over there. Um, when, when I first became the pastor here, uh, I went and grabbed coffee with him. And he was just asking me, like, how he could be praying for me and what they could be doing for us. And I just shared a couple things, and I just said, hey, man, I'm just going to be honest with you. Right now, like, I'm really praying that we would not just see transfer growth. Like, I don't want just people from other churches. I want new believers. But I also feel like, man, maybe we need a couple more key pieces, and I don't know what that looks like. And so would you just be praying that the Lord would send us some people to help us out? And Ricky said, yeah, I'll, I'll absolutely be praying for that. And then he also sent us some people. <laughs> like, there's, there's some families in this church that have come because they believe, like, hey, this is gospel mission, and we're going to go help this church. And he did that. Like, he was encouraging them. He was sending them. Some families came and, and talked to him, and he said, yeah, I, I, want, I actually think you should go. And then they prayed for us on a Sunday morning when they sent these families out. Like, how incredible is that? Like, how amazing is that for us to see that, that value that they placed on the kingdom growing and saying, hey, there's a, there's a church over there that needs a little bit of help, and so we're going to send it. To not be so focused on building up that they don't send out. Like, I just, I think that's an amazing witness. Because church is not a competition. So I think we have to ask ourselves, do we rejoice when other biblically faithful churches in our city thrive? Are we just as concerned with the success of biblically faithful pastors and churches in our city as we are with our church? And are we grieved when division over non-essential issues takes place in the church? I think these are things we have to be asking ourselves and we have to be pursuing as a church. Like, I got two weeks in my preaching schedule right now before we're moving into something else, and I just felt like this is what the Lord needed to say to our church. We need to focus on unity, and we need to pursue it at all costs, and we need to fight for it, and we need to be praying for it, and we need to be saying that we are going to pursue this. We're not going to treat our church as expendable like everyone else in the world does. This is not expendable. Now, if the Lord's calling you to go somewhere else, 
man, I want to get behind that. I want to lead you into that. I want to help you go where the Lord's leading you. If there's churches in this city that you feel like, hey, man, they could use a little help. They're a biblically faithful church. They're moving in the right directions. Like, can I feel like maybe the Lord's calling us to go. And I'm going to be like, all right, well, I'm not sure. We're going to question that. We're going to pray. All right, fine. You can go. I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to encourage us to pursue the mission of God, not just in our body, but in this city. And so what I'm going to do right now is, is I'm, going to, I'm going to pray for unity. I'm going to pray for unity amongst our church. I'm going to pray for unity amongst this city. And I would just ask you, while I'm praying, to take a moment to say, where are there areas in my life where I am willing to divide over things that are non-essential? Where are areas in my life that I might be more discipled by the unity or the division of the world than I am by the unity of the Trinitarian Godhead who I supposedly worship? Where are areas in my life where I'm not rooted and grounded in the gospel? And how does that affect my witness? So I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we need you. This task of unity is not one that we can accomplish on our own. And yet you have invited us into it. Lord, we desire that you would be made known in our city. We desire that people would come to know that they are loved by you. But Lord, we know that we need your help in order to do that. We live in a world that has divided us. And Lord, we are so often allowing more of those voices in than of your voice. Would you help us to hear you? To be centered on you, to be rooted and grounded in you? Lord, for those in here who are realizing that they may have divided over some things or they may be feeling led to divide over things or, or Lord, maybe even they just haven't even thought about the concept of Christian unity before and they're realizing that they need a, a better idea of what that looks like. Lord, I pray that you would meet them, that you would draw near to them, that you would point them to you. And Father, I just pray that you would help us as a church to not pursue false unity, not unity that ignores hard conversations or that desires nobody asking questions. Lord, we want to ask questions. We want to lean into each other. We want to grow, but Lord, we also want to be unified. And so help us to do that well. Lord, cast a vision for our church and, and for this city that leads to people knowing you, to believing in you. Lord, for those of us in here who uh, feel like we, we have to be so stuck on some things that, that 
that really matter, Lord, but they're non-essential, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that our value is not determined by our thoughts on non-essential matters. Our value is determined by your love for us. Lord, lead us into truth. Sanctify us by your word. Help us to be united in the gospel. For your glory alone, Lord. Lord, in areas where we're not promoting a compelling and beautiful vision of who you are, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us even more so that we know who you are. And that as we know you, and as we love you, Lord, we would grow to look more and more like you. Mold us and shape us as your church, Lord. For all you've done, and for all you would continue to do, we praise you and you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen.